Well, good morning, everybody. This is Nathan Harris from Celebration Center. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm excited that you are with us. Whether you're a regular or whether you're a guest, thank you so much for making Celebration Center, our service, part of your Sunday morning. I know you could have done a lot of other things, but you chose to be with us. And I think we're going to cover some good stuff today. You see, we're in part six of a series. Uh, we're going through the short book. It's a letter called Philippians in the New Testament. And it was written by a guy named Paul, the Apostle Paul. And uh, this book, like I said, was written by Paul. And it was written to a group of Christians in the city of Philippi, an ancient Roman city that was made up of Roman citizens, uh, many of them who were basically charged with bringing the life of Rome to bear in Philippi, in an area that was hundreds of miles away from Rome itself. And that's important because uh, Paul calls the Philippians citizens of heaven. And essentially throughout this book, what we're finding is that Paul is charging the Christians in Philippi and us by extension, because it, this is written, uh, though it wasn't written to us, it was written for us. Um, us by extension are also citizens charged with wherever we're at, wherever we're living to bring the life of heaven where we go, where we work, where we play, where we, we run and, and have fun and, and, and toil and, and sweat and tears and you know, everything in between. Um, now, it's important to understand that Paul is writing to these people, not just as a church, not just in some business format, but he's writing to them as friends. They are dear friends. You see, Paul planted this church. We see that in the book of Acts. And he spent a lot of time with them. So he, we, we see this history, this shared history that the people in Philippi, the Christians in Philippi, and Paul have together. So there, there's this friendship connection based on that. But beyond that, there's also this friendship connection based on the fact that they are both partners together in the gospel, in the message that God has at long last fulfilled his promises to make everything new, to, to, to bring everything right in the world through his Messiah, through his servant, Jesus Christ. And that as partners in the gospel, Paul and, and the Philippians, like I've already talked about a little bit here, they've both been charged with bringing the life of heaven, bringing God's life to bear wherever they go, wherever they're at. And so for Paul, what we've found is that he's been in prison, writing from prison, and so he's supposed to bring the life of God even to that place. And, and the Philippians, in their difficult circumstances where they're getting... Um, shunned by, by people in their own community, or maybe they're getting persecuted and attacked. But whatever circumstance that they are in, they are to bring the life of heaven wherever they go. Now, through our time in this challenging book, we've been looking at what it means to be partners in the gospel from the Philippian situation and what it means for us in our situation. And if you've missed any of the previous messages, I encourage you go to our website, ccpuallup.com. You can scroll to the bottom of the page, click on either the sermon podcast link or the YouTube link, and you can get caught up. You can find all five of the previous messages leading up to this morning right there. Now for this morning, we need to remember that Paul has just finished one of the most famous passages in the entire New Testament. Paul told the Philippians, just previous to what we're going to read this morning, he told them, in your life together, 
have the same attitude, have the same mindset that Jesus Christ himself had. And from there, he goes on to set Jesus's story as the paradigm for a cruciform life, a life lived, embracing, and shaped by the cross. Then from there, he spoke to the specific issues the Philippians were facing and said uh, they applied, that they need to apply this kind of life through their corporate obedience together, defined as joining God in all that he is doing as willing participants, okay? The, the obedience Paul is talking about is not necessarily that, oh man, I wish I didn't have to, but I've got to perform this duty. Uh, we all know what that kind of obedience is, but Paul isn't talking about that kind of obedience. He's talking about this joyful expression of joining in with an authority, and in this case, with our Father, with God, and doing what he's doing. And then also, they apply this kind of life by being unified together because they are in what they're invested in, what they're chasing after is far bigger than any of them. It's a bigger life. It's a bigger situation. It, it's God's plan itself. So we, we, we need to understand all of that because here is what Paul says to us this morning. Here's what Paul says to the Philippians in our passage for this morning. We're going to look at chapter 2, verses 19 through chapter 3, verse, um, verse 4. And I'm going to read out of the NIV so you can open your Bibles or your Bible apps and, and get there. But I'm, like I said, I'm reading out of the NIV and I'm picking up in chapter 2, verse 19. So here we go. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Verse 25. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Chapter 3, verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. 
For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Now, at first glance, we might be tempted to skip through a large portion of this passage, specifically in chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. Because let's face it, there's a large part of it that's simply addressing some personal things between Paul and the Philippians. But I think it's really important for us to look at this passage because in it, we see part of what it means to be the people who are living out our citizenship in a worthy manner of the gospel. What Paul talked about all the way back in chapter 1, verse 27. Live your citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel. Here we are going to find an example. Paul has used his own life as an example. He's used Jesus as an example. And now he's setting forth uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples for the Philippians to follow and reminders for them. So let's dive right in. Here's what we see that is so important for us to understand the first thing. Living the gospel means being generous toward one another. Living the gospel means being generous toward each other. Have you ever watched kids share what they have with other people around them? They don't worry about the quality of their gift or how much they have. They simply give away what they do have out of love and kindness, whether it's a hug or a picture or a, even just a little piece of candy. And this action, not, not the gift itself, but this action becomes a point of connection that builds relationship because they demonstrate an interdependence with those they're sharing with. All of this happens through this act of generosity. That's one of the things we see here in Philippians 2, 19 through 30. Paul, as he is sitting in prison and is very concerned for his friends in their own situation, he's, uh, he's self-described, he's, he's feeling some anxiety for them about their situation and what their response is going to be to this situation. He sends some of his own comfort back to them. He's in prison. Roman prison was not a, a good, healthy place to be. Nobody was going to take care of you. They did not provide meals for you. That was something left to other people. They had to come to the prison to provide meals for you because the Romans weren't going to do that for you. So Paul is in this kind of situation. It was dark. It was damp. It was probably disease infested. And he is concerned for his friends miles and miles away from him. So he sends some of his comfort to them. All so that he can encourage them and build them up so that they will become the people God has created and called them to be. He's thinking about these other people. You see, the generosity Paul demonstrates in this section is born out of the life he just pointed the Philippians to in the previous passage, the cruciform life, the life of self-sacrifice that is devoted to God's plan, that is shaped by the very cross, that is bathed in love. It's interesting that the comfort Paul got from the Philippians 
was the gift they had sent with Epaphroditus. And now Paul is going to send this completed letter, this very letter of Philippians with Epaphroditus back to the Philippians. And so what becomes the gift is, yes, the letter, but it's Epaphroditus himself. The character, this character, was a gift to both of these dear friends. So here's my point. When we engage in being generous toward one another, sharing what we have as we live the cruciform life bathed in love toward one another, nothing we give away is ever really gone. God is going to continue to use our generosity, our, our mutual generosity toward one another in our lives. And it's interesting that when we don't pursue this kind of generous life, that it's a little bit like, well, imagine it's your birthday. And the only thing you've really asked for is a really nice dinner. I know exactly what dinner I'd be asking for. A nice, thick, perfectly seasoned and grilled ribeye garnished with a giant baked potato bathed in butter and sour cream and coated with salt and pepper. I don't get that meal very often, so I can, I can eat it when I do get it. But imagine as, as you're sitting down expecting this glorious meal to be served to you for your birthday, and you're imagining it and your mouth is watering and, and all of your senses are, are aimed in this direction, you sit down and what's placed down in front of you is cold pizza. You were given dinner, it just wasn't the dinner, right? Do you, do you feel loved? Do you feel uh, celebrated? Do you feel honored? We've all probably been on the receiving end of something like that. But here's the thing. When our generosity, when your generosity and my generosity is not born out of the cruciform life of Jesus and bathed in love, then it's just leftovers. We become the ones serving the leftovers. Because when our love doesn't cost us something, it's not really love. It's just leftovers. Will we be generous in a self-sacrificing way, sharing what we have without worrying about ourselves or our situation? Will we do that for one another? Because here's the thing, living the gospel means being generous toward one another and doing that sacrificially. It doesn't mean sharing the best, it means sharing what we have and giving it out of a heart of love as we are focused on Jesus, as we are submitted to the cross. That's number one. Number two, the second thing. Living the gospel means delighting in the Lord. Living the gospel means delighting in the Lord. I want to take a couple of minutes and walk through Philippians 3 verses 1 through four. This one I am going to read, and I'm going to make some comment as I read it. Here it is, verse one. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice 
in the Lord. Paul opens up this verse with a command, rejoice in the Lord. It's an imperative in, in the original language. This means this is something that's really important and you need to engage in it, all right? But what does it mean to rejoice? Because let's face it, often in our culture, rejoicing is all about a feeling. We're happy, we're excited, we're exuberant about something, usually a circumstance that has turned out the way that we wanted it to or that we've gotten something that we've been longing for. And it's not that those kinds of rejoicing aren't important or good or anything like that. But the way Paul talks about this rejoicing is that its object and foundation is Jesus. It's not a circumstance. It's not an outcome. It's not a gift. It's not anything other than the person of Jesus Christ himself. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul is calling the Philippians to rejoice, to delight, not just have exultant feelings, though that those are included, that excitement and that happiness is certainly included, but he's telling them to have a life that delights in the Lord. And the life that the Philippians have through and in him. And to do this through their actions. To the actions that they take. What actions? Well, the actions of preferring others above themselves. Of living the cruciform life. Of, of living out their, their citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's how they go about celebrating He goes on and he begins to introduce a second imperative here in verse 1. He says, It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Here Paul is setting up this second imperative for the Philippians. And he's not burdened to tell them the same thing. Apparently, he has told them this over and over and over again. He's mentioned this on more than one occasion. We don't know that the, that the situation that he's about to describe was actually happening at that moment. Paul is just sure that at some time, it was going to come down and happen, though. All right? But Paul isn't burdened to tell them this again. It's not like, for any of you who are parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When you give your kids an instruction and they seem to either not understand it or ignore it or whatever, so you have to give it to them again. And then you have to give it to them again. My wife hates it when I do this. I repeat myself way too often. I admit it. I am not a perfect parent. Okay, but, but Paul is not an exasperated parent repeating something over and over and over in an attempt to, to force his kids to, to act a certain way. He's excited to share this with them because it's for their safety. And here it is, verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. You see, all throughout Paul's ministry, he was dogged by a group of people referred to as Judaizers. People, people excuse me, who followed Paul wherever he went and would work their way into the churches that he planted and would throw those young churches into confusion by teaching and insisting that these Gentiles take on Jewish identity markers, that they had to become Jews by observing circumcision and dietary laws and even the Sabbath in the way that the Jews did it. So 
what they were saying is that you people can't actually be God's people unless you become Jews. Jesus isn't enough. You have to add these other things into your life. Paul says, watch out for these people. Verse 3, for it is we. And here, this we that, that, that Paul uses is emphatic. And it stands in direct opposition to these mutilators of the flesh, to these, these wicked people, okay? So Paul is not identifying himself with those people. Instead, he's identifying himself very intimately with the Philippians, saying, we are one. We are the circumcision, he says. We are those who are in Christ. They think that because they keep circumcision that they're God's people. But in reality, those of us in Christ are God's people. That's what this, this means. We, it is we who are the circumcision. We're God's people, he says. He goes on, it is we who serve God by his spirit. This is something along the lines of being God's kingdom of priests. And this was a title that was originally spoken of national Israel all the way back in Exodus chapter 19. Right before God gives the nation of Israel the law, he, he says, listen, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be a kingdom of priests. You're going to be my priests in and to the world. You're going to be my people serving me in the world. And here Paul says, it is we who are God's servants by God's spirit constituted as his people in the spirit and being the genuine image of God. That's what Paul is saying here. He goes on. It is we who boast in or who glory in, who put confidence in Christ Jesus, God's Messiah, right? And who put no confidence in in the flesh, in the way of life lived prior to and outside of the spirit. These two ways of life, Paul contrasts all over the place throughout the New Testament. They are eschatological uh, realities. That is, they're, they're ultimate realities. They're, they're the destination of life, so to speak, where a life that is lived in the spirit is, is joy and peace and, 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 and wholeness and, and all of these things. And the life lived in the flesh is separation from God. Okay? These two ways of life are in opposition to one another, he says. Verse 4, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. And here, th this is a transition piece and it's going to get awesome. We're going to look at this next week, um, so I'm not going to go any further there. But just to say right now, in these few short verses, we see packed all kinds of really cool things. And here's what we need to get out of them this morning. Here's the main thing I want us to get out of them this morning. Delight in the Lord. In the actions we take, in the dreams we have, let all of life be sourced in Jesus Christ and directed toward him. Delight in the Lord. I, you know, I was thinking of an example of this and I remember uh, when my wife and I were preparing for our first child, we had not been able to carry a child through to uh, delivery on our own. We had at least one miscarriage that we know of. Um, 
and we just we weren't able to have our own natural child. So we began pursuing adoption as the means of growing our family. And through struggles and triumphs and hope and uncertainty, we continued to plan and pursue adoption until finally, I will never ever forget this, 2 a.m. on Wednesday, July 14th, 2010, we got to hold our firstborn, Caleb, for the first time. Though we had not known him prior to holding him, we had spent a lot of time delighting in him. We bent our actions, our attitudes, and everything else toward having him. We prepared a bedroom for him. We got the walls painted. We hung up Winnie the Pooh uh, pictures and uh, decorated and you know all kinds of things. We, we went out and we bought a, a, an appropriate car seat for an infant. Even before we knew that we were getting him, we were delighting in him. We were bending our lives toward him in all of our thoughts, in all of our actions, in all of our attitudes. And that delight was made complete as we held him in our arms. You guys, delighting in the Lord is a little bit like that. We bend all of our actions, our attitudes, our thoughts, our intentions, everything else about us. We bend all of it toward him at all times and in all ways. We, maybe we don't do it perfectly. It's not that we don't ever have to confess sin, okay? It's not that we get it right all of the time. But the trajectory of our lives as we are delighting in the Lord is that we are putting into action this life, this cruciform life that is submitted to Jesus Christ to, and to his will, to his plan. And to him alone. Because he is our life. He is our future. And he is our hope. To live the gospel means we delight in Jesus Christ and him alone. So I've got a question. It's very personal. It's one I have to ask myself every single day. Who or what are you delighting in? What is your life bent toward? If it's bent toward Jesus, great, awesome. If it's not, confess it. Take it to him. Lay it at, at his feet and submit to him. You guys, to live the gospel, we need to live a sacrificial generosity and we must delight in the Lord with our whole being. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your grace that you give to us, that you have loved us, that us loving you, delighting in you, and, and living generously isn't so that we can earn anything. God, we could never earn anything. We have nothing that we could trade for life in you. You simply give it to us freely, because you love us. But Lord, we also know that the consequence of that love that you have given us is a different sort 
of life. It's a life lived in generosity and it's a life lived celebrating you in all ways and in, at all times. Through happiness and sadness, through triumph and tragedy and everything in between. I ask you that you would create space in us to see where, where we need to step up our generosity or where we need to step up our rejoicing in you. Again, not to earn anything from you, but out of love for you because of how you've already loved us. God, we receive that love. Help us to live in it and to live the lives that you've called us to as citizens of your family, already citizens of your family. Maybe you're listening or you're watching and you haven't yet begun your life as a Christ follower, but you want to. You want to get in on the life that God has. This free life that will require a different way of living, but that is given in freedom and freely. If you want to become a Christ follower, just make this prayer yours. Father, here I am. I want your life. I need you. I need your goodness. I need your presence. I need you to reach deep down into me. I want you to make me yours. Make me a citizen of heaven by your love through Jesus Christ and your gift of the Spirit. Father, for anyone who made that prayer their own, I ask that you would visit them right now, that they would be encouraged, that they would be built up, that they would have a sense of your presence with them right now and that life would never be the same. Not easy, but never the same. An adventure with you, God. And for all of us, work in us that we would be able to live our citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel by being generous and rejoicing in you. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Well, if you made that prayer your own, I want to encourage you go to our Connect With Us tab. Uh, it's in different places depending on what kind of device you're, you're on this morning, but you can look for that, the Connect With Us tab and uh, let me know. I want to hear from you. Uh, I'd love to share life with you. Uh, if you need prayer, you can do the same thing. Go to that tab and, and fill out the information Give me, shoot me an, an email or that way fill, fill out the, the form and hit submit. I'll, I'll, I'll get it and I'll be able to either call or email you however you want me to get in touch with you. But let's go this week living our citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel by being generous, sacrificially generous with one another and by delighting in the Lord. You guys, thanks for being with us.
look forward to talking with you next week.